Today's guest on My Climate Journey is Adam Minter. Adam is an opinion columnist at Bloomberg, covering Asia, technology, and the environment. He's written two books, including Junkyard Planet, an insider's account of the global waste and recycling industry, and Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Adam is a global expert on the circular economy, and we spend the first chunk of the conversation covering the recycling market and the role of China therein. We then go into the reuse market and talk about textiles and clothing. And lastly, we cover some of his recent reporting, which spans water and agriculture, before bringing it back to climate and China. Adam is deeply knowledgeable about a lot of topics, and he has a knack for uncovering the global market forces that shape local economic situations and trends. Our conversation was rapid fire, and we cover a lot of ground. But before we get started, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Adam, you are working at the intersection of many things that I personally have spent a lot of time in. Uh, in you, you've managed to connect the dots for them professionally. I haven't necessarily, but a lot of time in China, obviously a lot of time around uh, you know, thinking about working on climate change and the environment, uh, and you're from the Midwest. So, hey, we got like a, we got a, a triumvirate <laughs> of topics to go after here today. Um, let's start by hearing from you how you went down those paths and how they all connected, connect for you. Well, the, the very short version is I was born in a junkyard. Um, my family, uh, dating back 100 years, was in the scrap metal business. And so some of my earliest memories are literally wandering around the junkyard with my grandmother, looking at stuff uh, being recycled, about to be recycled, about to be sent off to the steel mill. And, uh, and you know, at the time, you don't think of it as uh, an environmental activity. It's the family business. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But you do start to think maybe a little bit differently. Uh, you know, from a very early age, I was taught to seek out the value in anything that somebody considers junk. And that's a that's really good training to be a reporter. So um, I, you know, I opted not to go into the business um, for a range of reasons. One of which was I liked writing, and I, I really wanted to write and report. And so I started out writing uh, in the Twin Cities. Had the opportunity to go freelance to China. Had no interest in Asia. Uh, it wasn't my plan. But like a lot of people who go to Asia, not knowing why they're going, I sort of fell in love with it. And I spent twelve. And when was this, Adam? When was two thousand two? Okay. Wow. 2002. Yeah. 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 So pretty early uh, in, in China's development cycle and uh, stayed in Shanghai for 12 years and then uh, moved on to Kuala Lumpur uh, until uh, COVID uh, in 2020. Wow. So, uh, you know, initially freelance, uh, wrote two books um, uh, and uh, continue to serve as a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Well, and so let, let's dive into the two books you wrote, uh, which are highly relevant for our listeners. Um, the first being Junkyard Planet, which I think really recounts a lot of your learning on this early journey from growing up to, you know, my big macro takeaway from the book is that you, you basically have a thesis that China's rise is in large part due to a global circular economy uh, that maybe we don't even think about, but that it very real and very much exists. Yeah, well, one of the themes of my work is that 
we already have a circular economy. We just have to look for it. And in certain cases, it's right in front of us. You know, uh, I think a lot of your listeners are familiar with what's called the Trans-Pacific Trade in Recyclables. Some people think of it as the Trans-Pacific Trade in Garbage. Um, I was there. It was not garbage. The reason China was importing all of that recycling was to recycle it. It had value. They purchased it. Every piece was purchased. Some of it, they got it and they said, maybe not. But most of it was manufactured into new stuff. And lo and behold, it was sent to Europe and North America and Japan as new products, which, depending on what it was, maybe was thrown back in the recycling bin, sent back to China to be made into more new products. And I documented some of this. And so, you know, I tried to put a, a sort of a very hot spotlight onto this trade that was for a lot of people immersed in a kind of murkiness and was viewed as not environmental, not green, not circular. And I argued in these books, uh, amongst other things, it, it's good for the environment and it's actually uh, climate positive. You know, I'm, I'm a, a, a big Chinese history major, actually, in, in college. That was what I studied back, way back mm. in the day. And and China has actually a long history of yes. sort of leveraging its populace to reuse, recycle metals. Like a lot of the, the rise of the, the current uh, communist regime happened because – you know, it was it was pulling materials out of the populace to uh, to to create the industrialization that it needed. And it sounds like, you know, your thesis is that's just expanded on a global scale over the last few decades. Right. I mean, I think what, one of the things that I found most interesting in being in China um, at the time I was, which was sort of the frothiest of the boom years, yeah. um, uh, was how important that scrap metal and scrap paper and scrap plastic trade was to the rise of their industrial economy. Southern China. Um, Guangdong province, which so many people now think of as the factory floor of the world, it is not a natural factory floor of the world. There are very few raw materials there. And you know, if they don't import the raw materials, now that could be imported iron ore mined out of the ground, say in Australia, or it could be, you know, imported shredded automobiles from Michigan, which I documented, you know, from an environmental standpoint, which do you prefer? Um, that's great. But also from an entrepreneur standpoint, which do you prefer? Because frankly, buying scrap metal is cheaper. You can buy it in smaller quantities. You don't have to buy, you know, a whole uh, ship full of iron ore. You can buy half a container load of a certain kind of aluminum. So that trade really gave rise to China's um, industrial heft. And I would argue, and I do argue, that you know, China was going to rise one way or another. They were going to manufacture. Better that they manufacture from our unwanted junk than from something dug out of the ground in northern Australia. And at some point in, you know, call it the mid-2000s into the early 20-teens, uh, you know, China all of a sudden now, at least if you look today, they're known for absolutely controlling the mining markets for precious yes. metals and and sort of battery metals um, that I guess is different than iron and aluminum and sort of the scrap metals that that were used over the last few decades but at some point the flip switched where they said hey you know as a policy we now need to go control the the original sources of these materials how did that evolve well I think there's a couple of things happening and it, and it, it at first it dates back hundreds of years China um, its leaders the the emperors had all been very key Keenly interested in being self-sufficient. China shouldn't rely upon other people and other countries. And China, um, when it comes to raw materials, continues to be very uh, reliant upon other countries. Um, but it had become right around 2010, 2011, it was becoming apparent they were becoming less reliant on scrap metal, scrap paper, scrap plastic from the US, Japan, Europe, Australia. Why? Uh, because they were generating their own junk. <laughs> 
you know? And so all of a sudden, they didn't need it as much anymore. Um, and so once they determined and, and that they, at least the government determined, I can tell you that a lot of business people there didn't feel this way. Once they decided that they were generating enough recyclables on their own, they started cutting off uh, the import of that stuff. And that sort of began this process, right? When that started happening, uh, this process of saying, where else can we be self-sufficient? How else can we control, um, you know, sort of our own destiny in terms of manufacturing and the industries of the future? So it really, it really began there. And and now on the flip side, you have the U.S. making massive investments from a, from a tax rebate perspective and whatnot into recycling of, for example, EV battery metals, right. you know, in the U.S. So it's almost like the script has the script has completely changed, uh, you know, in that regard. It has, and yet, you know, I, I, I've argued um, elsewhere that the U.S. investment in <laughs> recycling EV batteries. I mean, it's a it's a great idea, but it's never going to give the U.S. the supply, at least not in the foreseeable future, that it needs. Because to recycle batteries, you need batteries, and yeah. most of the batteries are in China. Yeah, you so, you have a you wrote a piece in Bloomberg recently that said we're ten yeah. years too early in that in that investment. Yeah. I think exactly. But at some point, you have to invest in the technology that's going to turn into those facilities, right? Do you, you think we're still too early in investing in the technology to enable those facilities? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, I think it's worth investing in the technology. I mean, you know, for better or worse, there's a lot of money, a lot of subsidies, a lot of venture capital chasing, um, you know, the EV battery recycling chimera, whatever you want to call it. Right. And and they're building out enormous amounts of capacity that's just not going to be able to be used for many, many years. So there's there's going to be a lot of money lost and wasted. But, you know, at least we'll have the technology as as the, <laughs> as the battery supply ramps up. I guess your point is, you know, we're just now starting to hit EVs surpassing, you know, 5% plus of annual sales. And so, you know, as that continues to, to ramp up, then you have a 10-year sort of wait period for those cars to hit end of life, Maybe right? more. And, Maybe and, more, and, yeah. And, and the other thing is a lot of those cars may very well just leave the U.S. I mean, you know, people forget the U.S. exports millions of used cars um, per year. I mean, if we end up exporting EVs, say, to you know, Nigeria, which is a major importer of them, those batteries are never going to be recycled here, you know, unless somebody sets up a supply chain. And, you know, which is back to this whole kind of green protectionism that that is is kind of getting the board that's getting thrown around all over the world right now. Like, you know, you could see a world where there become tariffs on where the U.S. is able to send used cars, et cetera, in the future, potentially, if, that, you know, going only to allies where the batteries will be recycled back into a U.S. allied supply chain. Right. And, and the problem with that sort of green protectionism is, is it's not always green. I mean, I would argue that if you send an EV to Nigeria instead of uh, recycling it in the U.S., that's the better environmental outcome because that EV is going to be used longer. Yeah, it'll and it'll displace a, a diesel or gasoline powered vehicle exactly. faster. Exactly. So these are hard questions and they're, and they're really questions about markets as much as they are um, about uh, circularity and, and, uh, and sustainability. Well, so speaking of markets, your second book is Secondhand, uh, which right. I think you you put out in 2019. Yep. Um, and, and that tended to focus, um, as I understood it, more on what happens to all of our consumer goods, right? So your first book is about, you know, quote unquote, waste materials. Your, your second book is about things that really are still usable, whether it's fashion, whether it's furniture, um, and sort of what happens to those around the world, uh, which, you know, I guess the uh, the thing you uncover in the book is there is a entirely huge global market around all of this as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that book was, um, I really love that book. Um, it's, it's a very personal book in some ways, and yet it's also, it's a, it's a business book. But that book was really inspired um, 
by taking after my mother passed away, um, you know, like everybody, we had some of her stuff and we didn't know what to do with it. We had some sentimental value, but ultimately I know she would have said, come on, you're not, you're just going to keep it in the basement. So as I was waiting in line to drop it off at a Goodwill, it suddenly hit me. I don't know where this stuff goes. And I'm, I'm like the trash and recycling, you know, detective. So I, <laughs> it hit me. I got to do this book. Um, and, and it was, I, I figured there were global markets. I didn't realize how important, um, how large um, these global markets are. I mean, uh, I was just in Costa Rica a couple weeks ago um, at a conference of clothing recyclers. And you know, if you if you talk to clothing recyclers in Central America, uh, they will tell you, and you can see it just by walking down the street, that secondhand clothing uh, in Central America is the primary means by which people dress themselves. Now, it doesn't show up in, say, Business Week as this really important fashion industry because the value is very low. And so we kind of, we don't do a very good of valuing this trade. But in terms of what it brings to people, you know, that, you know, equivalent of a dollar t-shirt um, is just as important as a $50 Patagonia t-shirt. But the dollars and cents don't add up that way. And so when I tell people you go to Nigeria or you go to Ghana and everybody's wearing secondhand clothes, they're not wearing new stuff. They're not interested. The development agencies aren't interested. But from a human perspective, it's critically important. And it's still a very large industry. How do you personally think about the balance between um, access to very low cost you know, clothing, um, you know, basic necessities relative to the ability to build a domestic manufacturing base in a given country? Yeah, I mean, that's always the question, isn't it? Um, you know, if you go to West Africa, um, where you will not really see much of a um, domestic clothing industry anymore, I mean, the, the immediate instinct is to say, oh, you know, Goodwill and Oxfam and Salvation Army, their exports uh, to these countries, the imports, have devastated the local clothing industry. But but that's not right. I mean, uh, you know, the U.S. doesn't have the same clothing industry that it had 25 years ago either. And it wasn't put out of business by Goodwill. It was put out of business by, you know, South and East Asian apparel manufacturers who were able to create, you know, economies of scale and efficiencies that drove the price of clothing so low that um, North Americans mills, say in North America, they couldn't compete with it anymore. So they offshored. And the same phenomenon happened in places like Ghana, where I spend time for secondhand. If you talk to the the, um, you know, people who are in apparel there, uh, they'll say, we simply cannot compete with the South Asian and East Asian imports coming in. And, and there's another level to this. They'll then say, that's why we like the secondhand clothes from Europe and North America, because it's better quality. It's been massively pre-tested. Somebody has been wearing it and wearing it and wearing it. And it's at a price point that oftentimes beats this, this new clothing of lesser quality. And sometimes it's even more expensive, but we know it's more durable. So we're interested in it. So from my point of view, as somebody who spent time in and around this industry and watch how it operates, I don't believe this industry is hurting local manufacturer at all. And, and let's go the, the other direction, which is the, the rise of, you know, at least in the U.S., the kind of fast fashion, which is, you know, H&M, Zara, some of these these brands that are, you know, creating, you know, clothes that really aren't meant to last, I, I would no. I would argue. No, not um, at all. How, you know, how does that compare to in Asia where you have a domestic uh, pr produced clothing that are also low cost? How do those two industries compare to one another? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the things I found most fascinating about Chinese manufacturers, I'm going to talk about Chinese manufacturers, Chinese manufacturers in general, not just apparel manufacturers, is that you can give them a product 
and and they'll call you up later that afternoon and say, we can make it at this price point and it'll have this thread count. We can make it at this point and it'll have this lower thread count. We can make it at this lower price point and it'll have counterfeit zippers, but it will still look like that spec you sent to us. Um, and it's, and, and it's a lot of that stuff never makes it here. Right. You know, it's largely sold in emerging markets um, because it hits that price point. I mean, Chinese are very good at manufacturing for uh, those emerging markets. And in that sense, um, the Zara's, um, you know, are oftentimes the higher quality alternative in many of the malls in these in in Asia. So it's a very complicated uh, play. And it really depends upon the consumer place, local markets. And my understanding is the challenge in both of these instances with just sort of these lower price points clothing that are not made to last is just an incredible growth in the amount of clothing that's being landfilled and being burned. Um, it, it, you know, how have you seen that uh, that trend uh, change over time? Yeah, it's true. One of the things you uh, you hear uh, the traders in West Africa say is that they are getting more and more clothing in the bundle. So when, when used clothing is sent to a country, it comes in a bundle. And it's pre-sorted over and over, usually in multiple locations. But they're, they're complaining more and more that the, that the quality just isn't what it used to be five years ago. You'll hear this in Goodwills. I mean, you talk to anybody at Goodwill in North America, they'll tell you the same thing. The stuff just isn't as good as it used to be. And so it makes it harder for them to sell. What happens to that stuff? Yeah, it could be landfilled. Um, it could be incinerated. Um, it definitely becomes waste. Um, sometimes it depends what it, the fabric is. Um, it could be shredded into stuffing for uh, mattresses, different kinds of furniture, and that is a use. I mean, we occasionally see these pictures of, say, in the Atacampo Desert in Chile. Uh, there's some famous pictures of, you know, big pile of clothes out there. And, and, you know, that's reprehensible. But I got to tell people, if you know anything about the used clothing trade and those pictures of, of piles of clothes in the Atacampo Desert, that's probably two or three days worth of clothing, uh, you know, in terms of what's shipped into Chile. Um, you know, where are the other 362 days of clothes? They're probably in people's closets. Um, and, you know, if you talk to any new clothing retailer um, in the U.S., uh, in Japan, in Ghana, they will tell you that they also have this problem. I mean, no retailer sells everything that comes into their uh, into their store. So there's also the waste issue. I think this issue gets blown a little bit out of proportion sometimes. Uh, there, there seems to be some guilt um, from people in exporting countries about this. But, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, great environmental crimes um, that are out there and top concerns you will find in emerging markets, environmental uh, cr- problems in emerging markets, I can tell you an excess of used clothing that can't be worn uh, isn't doesn't enter the top 20. I mean, it's just not a big, yeah, it's just not a big issue. I mean, if you go to Ghana, what are they worried about? You know, clean water, right. you know, potable water, um, garbage pickup. You know, all these things. I mean, this is really an uptown problem, if you will. And it's something that people who, uh, you know, I don't want to pay subscriptions for certain publications in wealthy countries worry about a lot more than the people in the emerging markets. It feels like in the U.S. there's a trend in um, higher end brands starting to invest in what I call what I hear called re-commerce, right, which is like creating their own reuse marketplaces themselves do you yeah. see that as solving an environmental problem or do you see that as mostly sustainability marketing? I have two answers to that. I mean, the first answer is 
great. I mean, the more you can see these big brands out there talking about sustainability, the better. I think um, I think it's good. You know, if it's greenwashing or not, I don't care because it's clear, um, you know, amongst just talking in the U.S., younger Americans, I mean, the polls are clear. Younger Americans, Generation Z, they are more sustainable consumers. I mean, they care about price, but they are more sustainable. So the more these brands talk about that stuff, great. Get that message out there. Now, in terms of, say, you know, a brand, um, you know, re engaging in re-commerce, I don't know that that is environmentally sustainable. Let me put it this way. Um, if I am a big fashion brand and I am asking with that, that sells expensive clothes and I'm saying, I'll take back your clothes. I, you know, I'm taking stuff off the secondhand market and more likely than not, I'm taking really good stuff off the secondhand market, stuff that would sell at goodwill very quickly. These big brands want to control their brands. They don't want to see them, you know, being sold um, in goodwills. It hurts the brand or, you know, th they want to control that market. You know, the less, the more stuff they can take off the market, the better for the brand. Um, so, you know, I, I'm very wary of that kind of thing and what the motives are. But on the flip side, I mean, again, anytime they can talk about sustainability. I think it's great. Yeah. I've, I've struggled with it with, with my own kind of climate change hat on when I, when I've seen these companies, because, you know, on the one hand, there's a time value to carbon. So keeping something from turning into CO2 today uh, by, you know, getting landfilled or burned or whatever is, is a good thing. On the other hand, is another turn for an extra four or five years. And then it ultimately is going to end up landfilled or burned anyway. You know, the next time someone is done with that piece, does that really make a difference? Maybe at scale. I don't know. I, I, I think it does it because, does. Okay. Uh, yeah. And let's uh, never, I mean, forget apparel for a moment. Let's talk electronics. I yeah. spent a lot of time thinking about electronics. You yep. take an iPhone. Um, we know that, I mean, this, these are Apple's own numbers. You can go on their website. They put them out there. You know, 90, I think it's 90, over 90% 90 of the carbon associated with the iPhone, um, a, a single iPhone is generated during the production process. The manufacturing process that includes the mining, everything else. Um, the the actual end of life, meaning waste disposition, whether it's recycling or tossing in a landfill or tossing into a fire, which nobody does, um, is in the range of two percent. Okay. So so the longer you can keep that iPhone circulating, awesome. You Assuming know, it's a, displacing the purchase of a new one, the purchase and thus the need to to order and manufacture a new one, I guess. So that's the thing you have to assume. Yeah. And, and usually, I mean, there are people who actually track where these things go, and it's amazing. You know, they eventually make their way to emerging markets. Yeah. And, you know, I have a friend of mine, he's pointed out, he says, if I were an iPhone and I wanted a long life, where would I live? It wouldn't be in North America because Apple's going to do everything it can to pull that off the market. It's going to be in an emerging market like Nigeria, Ghana, um, you know, Bangladesh, wherever it is, uh, because it's going to keep getting used. And even when that phone isn't usable anymore, um, the components will be taken apart and those will get reused. I love that you transitioned in that way because I had in my mind, I was trying to think before our conversation of, you know, what are the, the, the high level categories of of this sort of circular economy? And, and clearly at the top of the pyramid, you have reuse, right? Which is just like literally taking the same thing and turning it again, get, getting someone else to buy it or use it. Um, you know, then it feels like you have this category, you know, recycle is obviously the next one we talk about, though I, I would venture to guess you would say recycling is more complicated than just the word recycling. There are, you know, it, are you are you just literally taking the raw material and resmelting it or are you running it through some kind of chemical process, some kind of cleaning process? You know, typically I'm guessing there's there's a, a heavy, you know, kind of industrial component to recycling that is probably more than most of us appreciate. And then you have this sort of 
what I would call like reprocessing, right? Which is what we talked about with EV batteries or e-waste where you're having to actually get down to chemical level components and re essentially remanufacture the thing around it. Um, and then I guess the fourth category I would think of is sort of the notion of trash to value or feedstocks, which is, you know, whether you're taking a woody biomass or a, a chemical and converting it into some other kind of thing where, where you're taking a waste product and, and turning it into a new thing. Like, are those the right, like, I don't know, that's just me jotting stuff down. Are those the right four categories or does it not matter? <laughs> you know, I've, sp I've spent my whole life around the industry um, <laughs> and, and recycle, reuse. I mean, it's, it's a moving target, okay. you know? And so, you know, you tell me and, and, you know, I, I've had people, I, and people, I'll, I'll get confused by it. I mean, it's people will tell me I have a recycling facility. Oh, what do you do? Well, we refurbish old phones. I was right. like, well, no, you refurbish. We're not, you're not recyclers, but you know, that's my preference. So, I mean, it's, it's different processes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And, um, uh, you know, it feels like, you know, this whole notion of e-waste, whether that's EV batteries or cell phones or the, the idea of really you've got this this large thing and you just need like the handful of the really important hard to reach metals or chemicals that are inside that. We have to crack this open and completely reprocess that. That's where a lot of money is flowing in right now to, you know, try to uh, try to accelerate our ability to do those things, which ideally, I guess, prevents mining. Um, but your, your argument is on what time horizon? Yeah, it's all about the time horizon, you know, and and um, it's all about what, in a sense, you're you're trying to accomplish. I mean, there are, you know, you can recycle just about anything. I, I always talk about, you know, I always like to talk about rare earths, you know, which they, they're not that rare, but they are, um, there are these very important components. They go into your phone screen, for example, they make the colors pop. Um, Molybdenum, and, and, that's one of them, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Okay. Uh, and but the, the you know, they are expensive um, mining them. Most of the mining is currently done in China. There's expansion of a lot of places now. Um, it's very energy intensive. If it's done the wrong way, it will absolutely destroy land. And and it only requires you know a few grains, if you will, to make your iPhone screen pop. Um, that stuff can be recycled. Um, and there's lots of people talking about how they want to recycle rare earths, but is it really, uh, you know, is it really circular to be recycling that stuff? I mean, uh, even, even, I, I just don't see how you're ever going to be able to scale that kind of recycling up. Um, so, you know, we, we have to tread carefully. And I think there are very high expectations sometimes for what recycling can do. Apple talks about how it wants to be able to recycle the entire iPhone or build an iPhone out of completely recycled materials. I, I personally don't think that's possible. Um, I think there's always going to be waste. Um, and, and I think we all sort of need to talk, a, this may sound a little catty, but be a bit more adult about what this means. I mean, these are industrial processes mm -hmm. and you do what is possible and economically possible. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer -peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. 
If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. Well, I want to hit one more recycling topic um, and then let's shift to some of the other work you've been doing recently. Um, Plastics, just broadly. Uh, You know, you wrote a recent piece in Bloomberg uh, about how plastic recycling is working. Um, That is a obviously a a counter a counterfactual to what most people would say. Uh, So uh, unpack that for us a little bit. What's going on with the the entire plastics world since China basically stopped uh, accepting plastics from the U.S., at least as far as I understand it, uh, what, five or six years ago? Yeah, they will still accept plastics okay. from the well, there U.S., we go. But, there's, but, there's, but, there's diff- but it's just it's a more restrictive list. But okay. basically, it's plastics that they feel um, they need, you know, that they don't have sufficient uh, supply of. I mean, it's a very pragmatic, very market-based. So there are some that they'll take. Um, plastics have been recycled for years. It's always, you know, and it depends on which ones you want to talk about. Some are highly recyclable. PET, your plastic water bottle. Uh, those, those are extremely valuable. They can be recycled in everything from carpets uh, to CDs, although we don't make many CDs. But ideally, they're uh, made into additional plastic water bottles. Um, industrial plastics, which many of us never see, uh, but are extremely important and actually exist oftentimes in volumes much larger than the consumer stuff we put into our, our bins, uh, those are also recycled. Um, there's a lot of demand now from consumer product companies to create uh, recycled packaging. And that's been really important uh, to the development of plastic recycling technology um, and the development of plastic markets. And so uh, the problem we have right now isn't that there isn't plastic recycling, it's that there isn't enough. There aren't enough plants to supply all of the water recycled water bottles and all of the recycled plastic bottles that people want to build. And so um, it's not a question of whether, but it's, it's a, basically a question of how much. And is that a markets problem where because there's been so much investment in fossil fuel infrastructure, it is basically cheaper to create virgin plastics than to recycle them? Or is there a is there a policy subsidy thing here where we're overly subsidizing, you know, petrochemical production for virgin plastics and thus are not, you know, allowing recycled plastics to be competitive or like what's what what's, I mean, I mean, certainly different. I mean, it depends. Different kinds of plastics, right? D- yeah. Different kinds of plastics, different countries. Uh, but there are times when, you know, uh, recycled plastics are more expensive than the virgin variety. And and that happens more and more because there's a lot of competition out there for certain kinds of plastics. P.E.T. I mean, uh, think about clothing that you've seen that says it's made from recycled plastics or shoes made from recycled plastics. That's almost always P.E.T. Yeah. Um, well, the the apparel manufacturer is competing for that PET with, say, a bottle manufacturer. And so that's one of the reasons you'll see recycled PET be more expensive because there is a market demand for it now. Um, it's a moving target. And, you know, as people demand more sustainable materials, um, hopefully that becomes more and more of the case. Uh, it'll, it'll help boost recycling. I was talking to an entrepreneur recently who who uh, works in the recycling space, and he was telling me that um, because of the housing market slowdown, uh, all of a sudden the I think it was P- PET commodity market, uh, you know, took a crash because all of a sudden there wasn't as much demand for new carpet, which is like it's amazing to see how you know right. these macro trends affect things. And and I think this is a really important subject because um, I think. You know, a lot of your listeners, I mean, I give talks all over the country and all over the world. And one of the things that I found over the years in doing that is people understandably view recycling as an environmental imperative, Um, you know, especially in rich countries. This, you know, we're doing this for the environment. 
But that's not why somebody in the recycling business does it. They do it because it's a raw material and there's a market for that raw material. And what I always tell people is, look, that valuable PET bottle um, that you put in your recycling bin, it's recycling, except if somebody doesn't want to make something new from it, in which case you've just put garbage in your recycling bin. If there's no market, it's garbage. Mm. And, and so sometimes the markets are good and sometimes the markets are bad. And what usually happens when the markets are bad is we start seeing, you know, uh, big media organizations <laughs> write articles like recycling is dead. Um, which drive me crazy, you know, because when the price of oil is down and, you know, gas is, you know, at $2 a gallon or whatever it was at the low point during COVID, nobody was saying, oh, you know, oil is dead. No, we just, we knew the markets are down. But for some reason, people get very emotional. Um, and I, I get it about recycling. And they, they have a hard time getting their mind around that. Less so in emerging market countries where there's more of an understanding of what the economics of this are. But in the U.S. and Europe in particular, I, I find that mindset. Wow, yeah, it's it's a it's a good good point and a good reminder and and also an interesting kind of question that comes to mind, which is, boy, I mean, at some point, do we ever hit critical mass where the bulk of materials we create are from reused feedstocks as opposed to continuing to pull you know virgin chemicals, virgin metals um, out of the ground? Because at some point, my goodness, you know, we're swimming in our own trash here. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, because, uh, but I mean, it, it would require some really remarkable um, technology upgrades. I mean, even, uh, you know, I, we haven't talked about paper yet, but uh, recycled paper, you know, if there's a reason why you see it, um, you know, a box will say made from, you know, 60% recycled feedstock or 80% recycled feedstock. There's always virgin feedstock in there because you need it to bring the quality level up. When you recycle a piece of paper, every time you recycle it, the fibers get smaller. For Amazon, they're going to say, well, at some point that box is going to break because the fibers are so small. So let's mix some new fibers in there. And, and that pretty much is is what happens with every material. Um, you know, I don't know how you make paper fibers longer after they've been shrunk down. I, I think it's basic thermodynamics that you can't. Um, but but no. But on the other hand, the good news is, I you know, we use more recycling in this economy than most people realize. I mean, half the steel uh, used in the United States comes from recycled resources. You know, and I, I think that that goes past people sometimes, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, for aluminum, I think in China, off the top of my head, I want to say it's 40 percent. So, I mean, they're, and they're the world's largest manufacturer. So, I mean, there is this really good news story in that right. sense about using recycled material. Well, Adam, I want to shift gears a little bit and yeah. uh, talk about some of your recent reporting on Bloomberg, which, you know, goes, you know, you've done, you know, there are a few things on, on there recently in circularity, but it looks like a lot of what you've been spending your time on of late uh, is in the water and in the ag space. And, and I'm curious how you, you know, kind of shifted into into that uh, into that topic space. Well, uh, uh, here's how journalism happens. Uh, uh, at, at the beginning of COVID, the first day the global pandemic was declared, I was in the U.S. with my family. We were going to go back to our home in Malaysia, uh, and we couldn't because the borders closed. And so uh, I'm from Minnesota, so and we were in Arizona at the time. I said, well, we better go home to Minnesota and uh, see whose uh, basement we can live in for a couple weeks while this pandemic thing works itself out and we can get back to Asia. Well, you know, we know how that went. Um, and so I was talking to my editors and they said, huh, you're in Minnesota. A lot of farms there. I said, yeah. It'd be really great if you did some stuff on ag. I was like, well, I'm here. And so <laughs> honestly, honestly, that's how it happens. I don't think I've ever told that story publicly before, but, it, but it's been great. 
Um, and it's been a it's been a natural uh, for me because uh, you know there it's an environmental space. I mean, you know, it's, it's incredibly important to the climate question, and it's a raw material story as well. So I've yeah, and a global commodity story too, right? So you you kind of hit all the same general themes, I guess. Yeah. So I've really I, it was kind of a gift in a way, and uh, as I've spent more and more time in the U.S., and we're now going back and forth a little bit to Asia. Uh, I've continued doing this ag reporting. I had always done some food reporting in Asia, but uh, it's become much more of an interest since I've been here. So I, I want to let, let's start with with the water topic. Um, you wrote a piece recently that uh, was near and dear to my heart about how Kansas, which is where I grew up, uh, is showing what a drier future looks like. Yes. Um, and sure enough, uh, there there was a huge drought in Kansas uh, over the last year. Uh, I mean, it, my my dad was just talking to me the other day about how his entire you know backyard was dead, and he was having to you know replant you know everything and. Um, Tell us more. What what does a dry right. future look like? Well, I mean, the scary thing about uh, Kansas is, you know, it's highly dependent upon groundwater, um, and especially Western Kansas, and in particular Northwest Kansas. Um, it, it's it's that's the source of water. It's fairly dry, and the water source is something called the Ogallala Aquifer, which is very hard to say multiple times fast. Ogallala Aquifer. Um, you know, the Ogallala Aquifer has been used for agriculture for many years. People drilled wells into it. In the 1960s and 70s, they started doing uh, irrigation. They started pumping it at industrial rates. And lo and behold, it started falling. And it's fallen precipitously. And because it was already dry, it's very hard to recharge. And in a hotter, drier future, there will be even less recharging. And so all of a sudden you have these Western Kansas, Northwest Kansas communities having to figure out how are we going to keep our towns, our farms, our way of life going without this source of groundwater. Um, these are not places where people spend a lot of time worrying about climate change from a political standpoint, just putting it out there bluntly. But you know, everybody's practical and nobody's more practical than a farmer. And they are starting to adjust um, the way they irrigate. They're, you know, you can never call irrigation sustainable necessarily, but they're certainly using much less water. But it's it's scary uh, because ultimately it's going away. And was the, the aquifer typically recharged through annual rainfall and snowpack? Is that the, the basis of how it was? No, explain. No, I mean, uh, the Ogallala, especially in Northwest Kansas, and I mean, it, Northwest Kansas is a huge area, but it's the source of a, an enormous amount of the nation's wheat yep. is product. Um, to recharge the Ogallala Aquifer, it takes hundreds, sometimes thousands of years for water to seep through uh, the sediments to get down there. So, you know, a big rain, you know, a California style series of what is the atmospheric rivers ain't going to do it. It just it just takes too long. Um, you know, when the settlers first arrived and colonized that area, um, the aquifer in some places was a few feet, you know, just below the soil. I mean, that's not the case anymore. And these were inland seas at one point, right? Like the, the, it was an ocean. Yeah. Yes, they were. And so, uh, you know, I think when we talk about a drier future, there's a lot of focus on California and, and, and what's happened to groundwater there, especially in the Central Valley. And there should be because it's critically important agriculturally. But something absolutely similar in terms of the groundwater has been happening in Northwest Kansas. And it's, it's going to be if people don't become better at using their water and also adjust with different kinds of crops and different kinds of methods of farming, uh, it's going to be absolutely 
catastrophic to that farm economy. I mean, you know, what are the uh, the world's other big wheat producers? Russia's up there, right? Like you're 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 it really starts to hit large geopolitical issues at that point. Absolutely. And I don't feel like, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I talked to a lot of people in Northwest Kansas for that piece um, and, and they get it. Like you, they get it and they'll say, you know, and they'll tell you, they'll say, you know, these are not the sorts of people who are going to, you know, the farmers that we work with aren't going to spend a lot of time worrying about climate change, but they will worry about their water supply. And they see it because they're, they're drilling down further and further and further to get their water. It's reality. So that may be a place where we see some real climate innovation. And so this is, you know, rural Kansas where there's a clear, you know, issue that's happening. And then you also did a recent piece um, on Arizona, and I think it was more focused on urban Arizona and the growth engine of urban Arizona and how it's also clearly, I mean, this this one feels obvious to all of us, but it's clearly water constrained. Um, you know, maybe, maybe explain a little bit more about what's happening in the Southwest. Yeah, I mean, it's in many ways, it's the same issue, groundwater. Um, you know, a, a lot of people thinking about the Colorado River, and the Colorado River is really important. Those aqueducts bring water in. But but there are vast sections of the desert southwest that are highly reliant upon aquifers. Um, and that includes the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona. And Arizona, um, you know, in the 70s was very forward thinking about some of this stuff. They actually passed a law saying that you cannot build a subdivision you, you know, if you don't have a 100-year supply of water. And it was great. It worked because people had groundwater, but more importantly, they had access to Colorado River water. But as the suburbs of Phoenix grow out further and further, there aren't the aqueducts coming in there. They have to rely on the groundwater. And in Arizona, the government has determined, and this is, again, this is not a liberal government that, you know, that runs the state there. Uh, they have determined there isn't 100 years of water to support these massive real estate developments. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of homes that have been planned for these areas, and they can't get the permits to build because there isn't the groundwater. Um, if they want the water, you know, they are going to have to do one of potentially a couple things. One, potentially build aqueducts from the Colorado River, except as we all know, what Colorado River? Right. And, yeah. and then the other option is buy water from farmers because of the way the very complicated treaties and everything that have gone on with allocating water in the desert Southwest, much of the water goes uh, to farmers. And so there's now, uh, you have real estate developers buying up farmland and saying, we can maybe move that water into our real estate developments. But the bottom line is there's not enough water. And I know, you know in California, you, you mentioned water rights. I mean, water rights is such a complicated issue in California. Oh, yeah. um, and I know it's actually a relatively privatized thing in California where, you know, large um, large farms, large, large like corporate farmers own the actual water rights and can control which where it can to where it can go or if they can bank it. Um, is each state is different? I'm guessing in terms of regulation here. Is, is there any kind of federal water regulatory authority at all in the U.S.? There is uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, um, which is a which is a great name. The Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, they have the authority over the waters of the Colorado, for example. They manage those waters. And so they are technically in a position to mandate, say, the farmers in the Imperial Valley, you know, down south in California, south of you, uh, you're going to have to give up X amount of your water allocation, and it's going to be used by 
Phoenix, Arizona, which, which needs water. They are very reluctant to do that. I mean, there's negotiations going on um, right now, uh, you know, see if it can be resolved. Imperial Valley is going to have to give up some water. Um, but but it, yeah, it's, it's very complicated politically. Congress could get involved. I mean, California, uh, it's congressional delegations. They don't want to give up their water. Arizona says, you're going to give up your water because we're a growing city and you don't need it on these farms. And the bottom line is, you know, the Imperial Valley, I mean, you could say, oh, those greedy farmers, but they grow a massive amount of the winter greens that are consumed all over the United States. Uh, you know, giving up that water means potentially surging food prices. Maybe need fewer like hot desert summer grown almonds and, you know, heavy water uh, requiring plants. But certainly, you know, losing your leafy greens in the winter for the bulk of the country would not be a good thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, those, the almonds, I mean, it's an issue, um, you know, but if you talk to almond farmers, they'll also come back to you and say, look, these are in some ways highly efficient plants because we can do multiple crops a year, you know, whereas maybe, you know, corn, you can't do as many crops. I mean, just okay. to show. So it's, it's, it's really hard. And I'm always, I'm always reluctant to, um, I'm, I'm, you know, whenever I hear there's a boogeyman yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on an issue, I don't care what it is. Like, I really want to find out because I, I found it's usually more complicated than that. I mean, um, there's no easy solution. And, you know, you pull up all the almond trees and plant broccoli. Um, there's still going to be water shortages. All right. Well, I'll go. But the, the biggest boogeyman I've heard of in the California water story are Chinese investors investing in alfalfa for cattle uh, feed in, in the desert. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The, Saud- like- the Saudis do it as well. The Saudis. Um, okay, maybe it was the Saudis. Yeah. There we go. You know, and and, and uh, alfalfa is um, it's a, a yeah, the good the good news side of it is is alfalfa is a very efficient crop. You can grow lots and lots of alfalfa multiple times a year. Um, so in that sense, it's very efficient. The flip side of it is, is the point of the alfalfa is to is to feed beef cattle and other animals, and so then then you have to start thinking even more deeply about animal based diets, and I think that's that to me is is becomes is the, the crux of it. Yeah, okay. and and so I don't know, you know, yeah. I, I don't think you know, if you stop growing alfalfa, it's going to grow somewhere else. I mean, you have an entire uh, developing world that wants to eat more meat, um, and and there, so where are you going to grow the alfalfa? You know, these are really these are really hard questions. All right. So super appreciate the, the dive into, into water and let's do a little bit more even deeper into ag. Um, yeah. you, you know, one, your, one of your most recent pieces is that the 2023 farm bill should be a climate bill. Uh, explain that piece to us. So right now it's one of the, the Congress is in the midst of negotiating and wrangling and making the sausage of the farm bill, which is this massive bill that governs um, America's farms and subsidy programs and nutrition programs. That's the biggest part of it for five years. Um, Traditionally, it's there to help farmers grow more food, give them the support that they need. Um, And the farmers arguably, um, at least in terms of policy, haven't had to give much back. I mean, they give back food. what I've argued, and I'm not the only one, there's lots of groups saying this is, look, uh, we have an opportunity here to help farmers become more climate positive. And, and that can take many, many forms. Um, it can take the form of requiring cover crops, which I'm guessing at some point you might have talked about on the show. Cover crops are just basically the idea that when the when you're not growing a regular crop, you 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 grow plants on the ground and they are they sequester carbon and keep carbon in the soil because the soil is a source once it's broken up and cut up uh, when you plow it, when you till it, a source of carbon. Um, what if we give them incentives to do that, more incentives? And so I argue in the piece, you know, something like that. Uh, why, why, crop- why, what's the, argue, the counter argument to cover cropping? 
uh, I think the cover, the counter argument is uh, really you know, farmers are best suited to make the kinds of choices on their farms and not uh-huh. and not regulators. Uh, and and having spent some time uh, reporting in farm country, um, lots of farmers are voluntarily doing it. They 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 aren't real big fans of being told to do something, even with light incentives. Now, if you start paying them uh, to cover crop, which is one of the things that's been discussed, it might be a different story. Um, and, and I assume they've also just they've have heavy investments in the machinery that they use to till the land that they've been doing for, you know, for, for decades and decades. Right. There's, there is the mechanical side of it. Um, you know, other ways to you know, make a, a climate positive uh, bill is, you know, right now we have federal crop insurance and federal crop insurance basically incentivizes cropping wherever you can. And some of these places that are being cropped uh, maybe aren't appropriate for cropping and they'd be better off left alone as, as, you know, natural habitats. You know, let's stop incentivizing insurance on, to actually crop these pieces of land. Um, something I don't think I brought up in that piece um, you know, there's there's something called precision agriculture, um, where we're seeing more drones and more GPS used. So you can micromanage a field, basically. You know, this 10-acre plot requires this kind of uh, irrigation or this kind of water. This kind of, that's that's uh, more efficient agriculture is more climate positive agriculture. And I think all of these things can and should be subsidized in the bill so that we start thinking about uh Agriculture, not as something separate from climate, if you aren't part of the world, but actually something that can help on climate. You wrote a separate piece on crop insurance, you know, sort of uh, yeah. outlining that it's actually making our, our food crisis worse. Um, you know, can you share a little bit more there? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the way it's structured, it, it sometimes incentivizes farmers not to plant. Um, and, and there's types of, uh, you know, the, the insurance is designed to reimburse them if a crop fails, but it's structured at times in ways without getting into the complicated, uh, uh, stuff around it to actually encourage them not to plant. Um, and you could say maybe that's climate positive. We'll, we'll fallow the land and let the carbon stay in there. But on the other hand, um, you know, we're all seeing the surging food prices, some of that, which is related to the Ukraine. And, and I think, you know, policies, which encourage them not to plant for those yep. reasons are not good ones. Well, you know, as as discussed, I grew up in Kansas, and I will say I grew up in, around Wichita, Kansas. Okay. And growing up, it was it was wheat, right? It was yeah. it was wheat, and then I would say by the time I was in my my young adulthood, uh, it was all corn. And I assume that was during the biofuels boom of the two thousands, when all of a sudden the government was essentially paying these farmers to not grow food but to grow fuel. Uh, and then today, it's almost all cotton. And, you know, in Kansas, which right. there was no cotton in Kansas when I was a kid. Uh, well, I, do, I don't remember seeing cotton in Kansas when I was a kid. Are these government incentive policies? Are these climate-induced sort of changes to what grows in certain areas? Like, what, what causes these vast shifts in, in what's planted where? Yeah, yes to all. Um, mm. Sometimes government incentives help. Sometimes markets change. Um, uh, you know, there used to be much more wheat growing in the United States. Um, including in Kansas, um, including in Indiana. I, I talked to somebody about that recently. Um, you know, the incentives changed. Suddenly biofuels came in and that's a whole, that's a very complicated uh, issue from a climate perspective, but suddenly there's an incentive to grow more corn. In terms of climate, I did a piece, I, I was up in the Yukon of Canada um, in Whitehorse uh, back in November, I think it was. Yukon Whitehorse is actually home to wheat farms now which is incredible. 
There, there were there. Nobody was ever going to grow wheat up there. It's a very short growing season. They're growing other stuff up there. Why? Um, the climate has shifted enough where they can actually have enough of a growing season to make certain crops work. Um, it's an extreme example um, because you're never going to see vast wheat farms up there. They're relatively small. The one I visited for the piece, I think, was 400 acres. Um, but that's 400 acres of wheat in the Yukon Territory. I mean, it's unbelievable. And and you can thank you know a shifting climate for doing that. And and you will see that if you go a little further south in Alberta, you're seeing the mix of crops change. And if you talk to agricultural officials there, they'll tell you um, the climate shifted and it's opened up possibilities for Alberta's farmers. So um, yes, it's, that's going to drive some very significant changes in agriculture. Well, let's, uh, I know we, we're going to wrap this conversation up pretty quickly, but let's uh, go full circle on this and connect the China and climate angles together. So um, anything you want to share, I, for me, that's actually a topic I've been meaning to and wanting to go deep on on this podcast is the intersection of China and climate. China's the the largest annual, you know, pr- uh, emitter of greenhouse gases today, um, you know, in 90 seconds or whatever you want to use, uh, you know, explain a little bit about what the current climate policy landscape looks like in China. I, it's complicated. How's that? Um, you know, on, <laughs> on, on, on one hand, I mean, the Chinese government, I mean, it's a country of 1.2 billion people, um, you know, a very competent central government and lots of local governments that kind of do what they want to do. Um, there's an amazing renewable drive there. Um, they're building renewable energy like crazy. Um, so crazy that they're building overcapacity and sometimes not even building the power lines to connect it. Um, at the same time, they're also expanding coal and other traditional fossil fuels. Um, they feel that they need them as backup for all these renewable projects that don't have power lines sometimes um, and for other reasons. Um, And then on top of that, and I think for me, the really positive thing is you see, again, the same thing you're seeing in the U.S. is you see this generational shift. I think it's partly an emerging, more affluent middle class um, and uh, a younger generation that's become much more uh, environmentally, sustainably minded. They are subtly and sometimes vocally pushing their government to act in more sustainable ways. And it's, it's really striking if you spend time on Chinese social media, which I do, the number of people talking just in the last few years more and more about sustainability, more and more since COVID. And I think that's positive because we don't often talk about it in the U.S., but the Chinese government is responsive, especially to its younger people, as we saw at the end of COVID. And so that's very optimistic to me. But the, the, the full answer is a country that big, that complex, it's complicated. And I guess, you know, one thing that maybe, uh, you know, people don't think about with with China as it pertains to emissions is China doesn't have a, an, an endemic petrochemical industry. Like, or, like there's no oil industry in China. So there's not that entrenched interest there necessarily pulling them back toward fossil fuel production in, in any large way. On the other hand, there is a very entrenched coal industry and vast parts of the North in particular are very, um, they, they're they deeply rooted in the coal industry. And that's extremely difficult um, to break that bond. Um, and so that's the real challenge. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Adam, I'm so grateful for you spending time with us today. How should people follow you? It looked like you maybe have kind of at least per- temporarily or maybe permanently signed off from Twitter. I'm not sure. I'm, I couldn't I, quite I, tell. I, yeah, I can't quite tell either. But a couple, <laughs> weeks, a couple of weeks ago, I said I've had enough of this and I haven't logged back on since. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, okay. uh, you know, so it's, that's the best way to connect with me. Um, and then uh, if you just Google me, whatever I'm following or whatever I'm writing on Bloomberg usually shows up right there in the news section. So, well, hopefully folks are inspired to pick up a copy of Junkyard Planet or of Secondhand. Uh, and Adam, we really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. 
At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.